Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Father, we come to you today. We ask that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes, our minds to your word, that your spirit would do his work, that we might know you, that we might come to believe and trust in you more fully. And we pray, Father, that we would have a hunger and a desire for your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series on the Gospel of Mark, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And uh, what does that mean to us? Who is Jesus to us? And we get this very pointedly today. You know, many years ago, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, had um, referenced what is called the trilemma whether Jesus is the liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And here's just an excerpt from that. Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Today we're going to look at three different possibilities, three different ways, assessments of Jesus. The first is Jesus is crazy. That was one assessment. The second was Jesus is possessed by Satan. And the final one is Jesus is family. The first one, Jesus is crazy. Crazy. That was the assessment that we read of in verse 21. Uh, Prior to that, we read that Jesus has gone home Uh, That home, as we noted before a couple chapters ago, is Capernaum. He's no longer living in Nazareth. And uh, we could uh, guess that perhaps he's back at the same house he was in the previous episode when he was in Capernaum at uh, the house of Simon and Andrew. Uh, Maybe that's where it is, but he's somewhere in Capernaum 
And so uh, we read in verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The emphasis here is on the assessment of the family, that he's out of his mind, that he's uh, not right in the head. Um, And uh, they came here evidently to do a little intervention, a little family intervention on Jesus. They thought they were doing him a favor by coming in. We're not really told why they assessed that. We, I guess, could maybe there's a little hint there that he couldn't even eat. There were so many people around him. Uh, you know, maybe they were concerned for his health and well-being. But again, the emphasis is simply on the fact that they assessed him as crazy. Now, last week, you'll recall that we looked and found some very positive responses for Jesus. That was the 12 disciples. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. They responded. They came to him. He called them to be with him, to travel with him, to learn from him. And then he would send them out as apostles. And so a very positive assessment of Jesus, a very positive response to Jesus. But then at the end, we get that inkling of a problem and the fact that one of the disciples were not going to assess him very well. And that was Judas who we learned would betray him. And now we come to another negative assessment, that he is out of his mind. Now, the the English Standard Version translation that I read from, um, and I think accurately captures the the sense of it, uh, pointedly calls this his family. Now, in the Greek language in which this, uh, the, the Bible, the New Testament was written, uh, it's, it's a broader phrase than that. Uh, scholar James Edwards says of the phrase, it's simply those of him, very broad. It could be his associates, it could be his kin, it could be followers as well as friends or family. It's got that range of meaning, it's that broad. But the reason why the ESV translates it that way, and I think for good reason, is we've got number one, at the end of this section, we find the family there. Um, and then also, in addition to that, there. They're of him who've come to seize him. So they have positive concern for him, and yet their assessment of him is negative. And I think Mark leaves it purposely vague so that we can respond as well and ask what our assessment of Jesus is too, that we can fit ourselves in this particular narrative and say, is this how I'm assessing Jesus? These were people who were of him that were connected to Jesus and yet assessed him in this, way, in this way. You may have taken a DNA test and you may have found that you're not related to Jesus. This still applies to you uh, today. You may be a, a church member, a person in a church. You're here today in church. You have some connection to Jesus. You may be a preacher. You may be an elder in the church. You may be a biblical scholar or somebody that does a podcast on Jesus or a contemporary Christian singer that sings of Jesus. Uh, Just this week, I um, saw somebody that had uh, written in Facebook, a a fellow preacher, somebody that's not in our denomination, and he basically said that Jesus did not need to die for your sins in order for you to be forgiven, uh, that that is uh, not necessary And yet Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark says he's come that he might die as a ransom for many. And so, number one, uh, the Apostle Paul says, be careful if you stand, lest you fall. 
So we should take it to heart. What is our assessment of Jesus and the words of Jesus to us? And if you're here as somebody who is investigating the Christian faith, you need to understand that there are people who are connected to Jesus and in a sense are saying, yeah, Jesus is crazy sometimes, right? So some assess Jesus to be crazy. Secondly, the second assessment we see is Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's a negative assessment. This was by the scribes, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, a little reminder, these are the the scribes, and in the Gospel of Mark, often we see these encounters between Jesus and the scribes. The scribes, you will recall, were uh, very respected leaders. They understood the biblical law. They understood law. Uh, They had uh, amassed these traditions uh, in an effort to uh, further define the law. And they were highly respected. If they walked down the street, people would pay them homage. If they came into a synagogue, people would stand. Um, And so we have this encounter with the scribes. And um, back uh, a chapter or two before, we have Jesus. uh, And again, the scribes have an assessment for him. They are listening to Jesus. They're watching Jesus. Jesus heals somebody, the paralytic, and but before that, he says, your sins are forgiven. And so they accuse Jesus in their hearts of blasphemy. Who could forgive sins but God alone? So they assess Jesus to be blasphemous, and here we have them coming out into the open. They've come from Jerusalem, and they've come specifically to make a statement and an assessment of Jesus publicly. They say, no doubt, He is a miracle worker. He's done many, many things. They don't doubt the fact that he has put people back in their right mind after they've been possessed by a demon, by they've been demon oppressed and demon possessed. And they are um, and they're something dramatic has happened to them that has helped them. They said, no, it's by the prince of demons that he does this. He does it by that power. They assess the power at work in Jesus to be a demonic and a satanic work. And Jesus just argues logically in verse 25, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Many of us are familiar with those words from Abraham Lincoln's speech. And Abraham Lincoln did not come up with those words. He um, stole them from Jesus. He plagiarized there at that point. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then in verse 27, he he uses the illustration. If you're going to plunder a strong man's house, you have to be stronger. You have to come in and bind the strong man and plunder his house. And Jesus is saying, number one, there are satanic powers. There are demonic powers. Satan is strong. Satan is an adversary. And yet I have come and I am stronger and I am in authority And I have bound Satan. I've plundered his house so much so that we see people being restored and um, and demon possession gone from these people because I was able to do this. So scribes get a clue. This is what's going on. 
And in fact, he says to them in no uncertain terms that their response to Jesus and what he has done in terms of his ministry of, um, of casting demons out of people, um, that they are danger of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, truly, I say to you, this is in verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, the scribes, they have come from Jerusalem. They've come from the religious epicenter in Jerusalem. They've come to make an assessment. They've come to make a pronouncement, a declaration of who Jesus is prior to this. They have accused Jesus of blasphemy in their hearts. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, no, it's time for me to assess you. And the assessment is you are blasphemous. You are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You are in danger of a very, very serious eternal state on the basis of your blasphemy. Now, uh, people will say, have I committed the sin, the unpardonable sin, right? Um, Let's think a little bit about um, what this means in the context of the Gospel of Mark. We go back to the very beginning, and John the Baptist um, says of Jesus, he prophesies, he says, I baptize you with water, but there is going to come one after me who will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist announces the ministry of Jesus is a ministry of baptizing with the Holy Spirit. It is part and parcel of what he came to do. And then we find Jesus at his baptism, the presence of the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit, who again is saying, this is our ministry We are sending Jesus out to do ministry, and then he does just that. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness, it says explicitly. And so the ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry that is both propelled by the Spirit and has the Spirit of God as its focus, that people might be baptized, they might receive the Spirit of God. That their, that their stony, hard hearts, by the power of the Spirit of God, might be softened and that they might be responsive and that they might have the Holy Spirit as they come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the very purpose and mission of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, by uh, accusing Jesus of being empowered by Satan, are in fact blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So... If you have accused Jesus uh, of having power uh, to uh, relieve demonic oppression and possession by Satan, then you are in danger of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So I'm just going to leave it there for now. I'm assuming that most or all of you have not committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in that way. Even if you're not a Christian here and you're among us, Probably you have not said Jesus uh, does these wonderful miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's one good thing. If you're asking the question, gee, I need to have my sins forgiven. 
Yes, you do need to have your sins forgiven. It's good to ask the question, is there a sin that cannot be forgiven? Is there sins that I have that are not forgiven? Then absolutely. That's a good question to ask. Because Jesus says that we need to have our sins forgiven. That our sins can be forgiven. And that's what brings us into relationship with God. A restored relationship with God. And as we'll find out, part of his family the forgiveness of sins. So we'll talk more about that as we look at the third assessment. And the third assessment is Jesus is family. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, He said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. So the crowd is so thick that they can't even get in. Uh, This this is the, the, uh, the, they're way over the occupancy limit here in this house. Uh, So much so that the the family can't get in, they're outside. And interestingly enough, there's a a message gets sent to Jesus from the outside, your, your mother and your brothers are out there. Now, interestingly enough, we don't, we don't find here recorded in Mark uh, that there's any dialogue about what was alluded to prior to this. It's not like somebody is saying, your mom and dad have come, or your, your uh, mom and your brothers have come here with a straitjacket to haul you off. Uh, doesn't say that. He just they're out there. They're looking for you. And so Jesus, his response is not overtly negative. Uh, It might sound a little calloused, but it's not overtly negative about his brothers and his mother. He's making an important point about who is it that is part of his primary family, the family of God. And it's those who come to him by faith and are united by faith in Jesus Christ, obedient to the will of God. Of God, He looks at those around him, the 12 disciples undoubtedly and others because he, he says there are uh, women, uh, mother and, and sisters among, among us here. Um, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus Christ has come uh, with a purpose of proclaiming God's will to repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel as we've already heard. He says that good news is fulfilled in himself, in Jesus himself, in his presence as the Son of God, who has come uh, to live a life and to die as a ransom uh, for you and for me and for all who will believe in him. And so that's, that's primary. That's the first way in which we follow the will of God. John 6.40 says this, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Would you be addressed by Jesus as family? It's really Jesus making the assessment, right? Jesus is making that assessment. These are my family members here. If you would, you come to him and you receive him. And you believe in him and you trust in him according to the will of God and know what it means to have your sins forgiven. The Bible says that all who come to him, who repent and believe, have their sins forgiven because Christ made that sacrifice for you. And his perfect life 
will be credited to your account before God. And so we come to him, we sit at his feet, we receive him, we assess him to be, um, we assess him to be the answer to the will of God. He's our brother. He's our family member. The, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you family. Why? Well, you're just so good, aren't you? That he's just not ashamed to call it? No, because he has paid the price. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been made part of the family of God. You've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come and we sit at his feet. We've got his word today. We listen to his word. We're saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. But whatever the will of God is that Jesus presents to us, we receive it and endeavor with the help of the Holy Spirit to live by it. In 1987, Professor Virginia Stem Owens wrote an assignment. She gave an assignment to her class at Texas A&M. This was a freshman English class, and she assigned the Sermon on the Mount. It was a selection in the King James Version from the rhetoric textbook that they were using. And um, some of the written responses surprised her. And here was one. Uh, One response was, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Another said, I did not like the essay, Sermon the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another person responded, certain beatitudes are irrelevant to current lifestyles. Loving your enemies, for instance, is obviously not observed by the majority today. This essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. It can be used as a guideline for good manners. And then finally, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Mm. What's their assessment of Jesus? You know, much like the, the scene we have here today where people flocked to hear Jesus, flocked to hear him. They sat at his feet. They received his word. He said, you are my mother, my brothers, my sister. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came. They flocked to him. He said, come to me. And he taught them the Sermon on the Mount. How will we respond to Jesus? Will we receive him? How will, he, how will we assess him? He is our Savior. He is our Lord if we come to him, trusting in him. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's the trilemma that C.S. Lewis laid out for us. Here I'll quote the full quote from Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so we come to him as God incarnate. We come to him as one who we listen to him, we receive him, we receive the forgiveness of sins, and we, um, we listen to our Savior, our brother, our king, our authority. He's closer to us than any other human being. You know, in premarital counseling, couples will come in, and part of what I do in premarital counseling is, um, is talk about what the Bible says about marriage. I and mean, there's a lot of very, very practical, helpful um, direction in Scripture and teaching in Scripture on family and marriage. And uh, people, some, every once in a while, a, a non-Christian couple will come in and they want to be married. And I'll say, well, if you go through my premarital counseling, we'll, we'll do that. And they'll say, okay. And I go, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my counseling from the Bible. Um, okay. I say, okay. You know, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And it's not good for man to be alone. That uh, was not good for Adam to be alone. And so Adam looked and... The animals, you know, he named the animals. No, none of them do anything for me. And, and uh, God said to him, um, I will, uh, I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm paraphrasing here. Put you to sleep, Adam. And he, uh, out of his rib, uh, creates Eve. And, she, and he says, what? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman, for she has been taken out of man. And then we get to the, the point of the whole narrative. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. Uh, to his wife, the two shall be one flesh. So what is he saying at that point? He's saying Adam was alone and he was in desperate need of the woman and the woman in desperate need of the man. They came together um, and there was no husband and wife, right? There was no father and mother rather. And so they're saying, this is why you leave father and mother. Your father and mother are not primary in your life. Your wife is primary, nor are your children primary. And oftentimes people will get this mixed up and they will put different human beings in ascendancy over the relationship with their spouse. Um, and that will, um, that will be uh, detrimental to that relationship. You want a good marriage? Uh, you keep that in mind. It's straight from the word of God. Now I say this and I say your number one human relationship after Christ after Christ is your relationship with your spouse. Jesus Christ is a human. He is truly God and he's truly man. And so you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and he is primary. We come to him. He is our savior. He is our king. He is our Lord and he's family. Would you assess Jesus to be family? What is he? Is he a liar? Is he lunatic? Is he your savior and Lord? And is he your family? Which will it be? Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we're so grateful for your word and the word of Christ recorded here in scripture. We thank you that it it is your word. And we know that the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, will use it to open our hearts and open our minds. I pray that you would do that today. 
Even as I prayed at the beginning of the sermon, I pray at the end of the sermon. Use your word to us and the word of Christ to us that we might come humbly, that our hearts might be soft to listen to his teaching. First and foremost, to repent and believe and put our faith in him. But then also as we live out our lives to be soft and tender to his words, to be hanging on his every word. And even as we fail to do that, Father, we know that your forgiveness covers our sins. But we pray that more and more uh, that we might show that family resemblance, that we might be your family. And for those that are currently outside of your family, that are still assessing who they believe Jesus to be, we pray, Father, that you would open their hearts and their minds too, that they might come to know Jesus as brother, they might come to know him as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation for the Lord's Supper, uh, we're going to sing the first two verses of The Wonderful Cross. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>